The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Hoare, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, May 24, 2020, on the basis of Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. The headline that appeared in the New York Times this week did what a good headline is supposed to do. It read, a new entry in the race for a coronavirus vaccine, hope. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just because I've been preaching all about hope for the past seven weeks. But that headline grabbed my attention. It earned a click. It made me want to read more. And sure enough, that article was all about some of the recent progress that has been made in the search for a coronavirus vaccine. Specifically, it focused on some of the preliminary positive results from some early testing that were released by a company called Moderna this past Monday. It's no surprise then that someone would take those positive results and connect them with hope. In fact, that's how hope usually works, isn't it? The more positive evidence we have, the more positive things we can see and, and measure and chart out on a graph, the more hope that we have. So, for example, when the availability of hospital beds and ventilators goes up and the number of new cases goes down, well, then our hope increases. But on the other hand, when it's the unemployment rate that is going up and our nest egg that is going down, well, then our hope goes down right along with it. In fact, not only is our hope very often tied to all of this very measurable data, but sometimes hope itself can actually be measured. When that company Moderna released those test results this week, people's hope in the future of that company instantly skyrocketed. How do I know? Well, because the price of the company's stock instantly skyrocketed. If our hope is directly tied to all of this visible, measurable evidence, we might be tempted to think that that presents a bit of a challenge for the hope that we have in Jesus. You see, for the past seven weeks, we've been making this claim that hope is alive. And over and over again, we've been tying that claim to one specific piece of evidence, the fact that Jesus is alive. In fact, you heard in those opening verses from the book of Acts that after Easter, Jesus gave many convincing proofs to his disciples that he was alive. In fact, for a period of 40 days, the evidence kept piling higher and higher and higher. But then eventually we get to the day that we are commemorating today, the day when Jesus ascended into heaven, the day when God's Son disappeared. And so if our hope is directly tied to evidence, where is that evidence now? Where is Jesus now? Where is God in our world and in our lives? What is he up to and how is he at work? Those are questions that are asked not just by the skeptical types who demand evidence for God's existence. Those questions are also asked by very de devout and very sincere believers. When the evidence that they can see doesn't exactly suggest that God is present and close at hand. In fact, maybe it even suggests just the opposite. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul has some very important words for us to hear this morning. The Apostle Paul wants to make sure that we see Jesus' ascension into heaven correctly. 
He wants us to know that that Jesus' great disappearing act does not mean that our hope somehow is diminished or even dies. In fact, just the opposite is true. As we look at these verses from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, we're going to see that when Jesus ascended, our hope skyrocketed with him. That's what this prayer offered by the Apostle Paul is really all about. It's a prayer about hope. Paul wants us to know and to see the hope that we have in Jesus. And he ties that hope, he connects that hope to two specific things. Paul first of all says that knowing the hope that we have in Jesus will come when we also know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. Contrary to what we might think, Paul isn't talking about the inheritance that is in store for us from God. He's actually talking about an inheritance that is in store for God, and that inheritance is simply us. That's how God actually looks at us. He he looks at us as his inheritance. In other words, everything that God has ever been up to in our world, from creating our world in the first place, to preserving our world even after we ruined it, and of course ultimately to sending his son to become one of us, to live for us, and to die for us. All of it was done with one specific goal in mind so that he could have us as his inheritance. That's how much our God loves us. God has decided to go all in on us. He's put all his chips out on the table. He's decided to go for broke just so that he can end up with us. Can you see how knowing that would lead to you having hope? I don't know you nearly as well as you know yourself, of course, but you know the things that you've done in your life and the things that you've said that you wish you could take back, that you absolutely regret because of the pain that they've caused in other people's lives. And you, of course, know the things that you've thought in your head and the things you've done behind closed doors that you would be horrified to think anyone else would find out about. You know all those things better than anyone else does. Well, believe it or not, God actually knows them better than you know them yourself. In our relationship with God, it's not as if God has gone on Craigslist and is looking for something that he wants, and it sure looks good in the pictures, but he hasn't quite checked it out up close and personal. No, God actually knows us fully. And yet in spite of that, God has decided to spend all that he has. God has decided to pay the ultimate price in sending his son just so that he could have us as his inheritance. Jesus coming to this earth, him living and dying for us, that is evidence of God's love for us. And that love fills us with hope. Paul connects the hope that we have to a second thing. He says, knowing the hope that we have in Jesus will come when we know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. So not only does God want us to be his own as his inheritance, but God is willing to work. God is willing to put forth the effort in order to make that happen. God's a a pretty powerful guy, you may be heard, but we might be tempted to wonder just how much power, how much effort is God willing to exert in order to have us as his inheritance? I mean, is this sort of like when you maybe go golfing and you shank one way off 
into the woods. And when you drive over there with your cart, you instantly notice that the entire woods is covered in thick, tangled branches, each one of which is covered in thorns. And even a single step into those woods would come with great difficulty and maybe even some pain. And so you sort of just look around real quickly and then think to yourself, well, I guess I lost that one. You put another ball down and off you go. I mean, is that sort of what this is like? Is that sort of like the effort that God would be willing to put forth in order to have us? Well, here's what Paul actually says. He says, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Can you see why knowing this would also fill you with hope? God has demonstrated his power by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Over the past several months, death has demonstrated that it is a pretty powerful force. It has demonstrated that it cannot be stopped by science or medicine. It cannot be stopped even with all the wealth, all the force, all the military might in the world. Death is an otherwise unstoppable force in our world and in our lives. But God has already demonstrated his power over death by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's the exact same level of effort. It's the exact same energy and power that God is now putting to work in our lives so that he can have us. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is evidence of just how powerful God is, and that power also fills us with hope. But now here's where we run into what may seem like a problem with this hope that we have in Jesus. Yes, Jesus' life and his death is evidence of God's love. And yes, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is evidence of God's power. But then we get to that day, 40 days after Easter, when Jesus ascended into heaven, when the Son of God disappeared. That's why Paul says, what he says. He, he wants us to see the hope that is ours and to know the hope that is ours, but it's a hope that we can't see with our eyes of flesh. Instead, Paul says, it's a hope that we have to see with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of faith. But if hope is directly connected to the evidence that we can actually see, wouldn't we be tempted to think that Jesus' ascension into heaven has taken all of that evidence away and thus also taken away our hope? Well, Paul goes on to tell us that just the opposite is true. Here's where he tells us how we should see Jesus' ascension into heaven correctly. Here's what he tells us. When Jesus ascended into heaven, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So Jesus' ascension into heaven is sort of like corporate restructuring day in God's kingdom. It's the day when God the Father took all of that power, all of that effort, all of that control that he was exerting in our world, and he handed it over to his son, Jesus. He got up out of that CEO's chair and he invited Jesus to sit down. He put Jesus in control of absolutely everything. Jesus' ascension might seem to indicate that somehow now Jesus is absent in our world. Jesus' ascension really means that Jesus is present in our world more than ever before. Jesus' ascension into heaven might seem to indicate that Jesus is somehow now farther away from us. Jesus' ascension actually indicates that Jesus is closer to us than ever before. 
rather than Jesus' presence and his power in our world being confined to just the one particular place where he happened to be standing or walking or talking or healing, now Jesus' influence permeates everything. It permeates absolutely everything that happens in our world and in our lives. Why is that such a comforting thing for us? Well, it's because of what we know about Jesus. When Jesus came to this world, he actually became one of us. He took on our humanity. He became a member of our race. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus went back up into heaven, he didn't stop being a human being. He didn't leave his humanity behind the way a snake might shed its skin. No, Jesus went back up into heaven as much a human being as he was when he walked the earth. And so now this Jesus, this human being, this member of our race has been put in charge of all things. And so, of course, he is going to use all of that power for the good of his fellow human beings. In fact, in these verses, Paul paints an even better picture than that, an even better picture than this one human being using all of his power for the good of seven billion other human beings. Here's what Paul specifically says. God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Did you catch it? Paul describes Jesus and his people as one single united human being. Christ the head and his church, his body. What that means is that Jesus is as likely to use all of that power that's been given to him to do something that, that would harm or hurt us. He's as likely to do that as we would use our heads to tell our hands to touch a hot stove or to tell our feet to step on a piece of broken glass. Now, does that mean that the parts of the body will always be able to see and always be able to fully understand what the head is up to in their lives? No. In fact, what do you think would happen if your head decided to tell your body to go for a 10-mile run this afternoon? If the muscles in your legs had consciousness, if, if they could speak out, what do you think they would say as those muscles started to burn and ache and wear out? Or what if your head decided that you needed to go into the hospital to get tested for COVID-19 because you had been exposed or been experiencing symptoms? What do you think your, your nasal passages or your sinuses would say as that cotton swab got shoved farther and farther in? Or what if your head decided that you needed to go in for an operation, that you needed to have surgery? What do you think your skin would say when it saw that doctor approaching with, with his razor-sharp scalpel? Wouldn't those parts of our body think and say some of the very same questions that we sometimes ask when the evidence in our lives seems to suggest that God is not around? We ask questions like, God, where are you in my life? What are you up to? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this thing to happen to me? Why are you putting me through this? Where are you when I need you the most? And friends, those are questions for which we would have no answers if we didn't know the truth about Jesus' ascension into heaven. If we didn't know 
that the very same Jesus who came to this earth, who lived for us, who died for us, who has been raised from the dead, this same Jesus who made himself a member of our human race is now sitting up in heaven in control of all things. This disappearing act, this ascension into heaven, it doesn't cause our hope to be diminished or to die. In fact, it does just the opposite. When Jesus ascended into heaven, our hope skyrocketed right along with him. And friends, that's why a hope that is tied to visible evidence is so vastly inferior to a hope that is not. In fact, this time of pandemic has surely taught us that important lesson. I mean, one day the evidence is all positive and so our hope collectively swells, but then the very next day the evidence turns negative and our hope instantly shrinks. In fact, in case you're tempted to worry that you somehow missed out on an opportunity to get rich by buying some Moderna stock earlier in the week, don't. Here's what happened the rest of the week. That stock came down almost as quickly as it had gone up, and it's now trading at pretty much the same price it was a week ago. That's what a hope that is inseparably tied to visible evidence looks like. It looks like a roller coaster. Yes, it can go up very fast, but it can plummet just as quickly. Thankfully, you and I have a hope that isn't tied to the evidence in our lives. It isn't tied to the circumstances we're going through. Instead, it is inseparably tied to the person who is in control of those circumstances. The evidence can go up and the evidence can go down, but Jesus has just gone up with a shout and with trumpets, and he still sits at the right hand of God. And so, yes, when Jesus ascended into heaven, our hope skyrocketed right along with him. And not only that, but because Jesus still sits at the right hand of God, that hope, our hope, isn't coming down anytime soon. Amen.